Welcome to the Aesthetic City podcast. I'm your host, Ruben Hansen. In this podcast, we talk about the question of how we can improve our built environment to make our cities more livable, more beautiful and long-lasting for future generations. Today, I'm especially honored to welcome a leading figure in the world of classical and traditional architecture and city planning. My guest today has over 30 years of experience in planning, working on several large projects like the East Side Access at Grand Central Terminal in New York City, Tel Aviv Metro, and multiple high-level projects in Washington, D.C., which have been extensively published in various magazines, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and various trade magazines. He's also the founder of the Classic Planning Institute, an organization that offers world-leading holistic planning knowledge and know-how. His recent book, The Art of Classic Planning, is already a must-have title on any city planners and architects reading list. The book is a critique of modern urban design and planning, and shows a path forward towards a new urbanism of beauty and durability. Without a doubt, one podcast episode won't be nearly enough to cover even a fraction of the knowledge he has to share, but we have to start somewhere. So please welcome Dr. Nierheim Buras. Welcome, Dr. Buras. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, and I want to tell everybody that I don't really have anything to tell them that they don't know already. Everything that has to do with traditional architecture and classic planning is actually inherent to humans as humans. So if anybody has told you ever, if you, you're come, you've come to the conclusion that you don't understand planning, it's not your fault. It's because you're encountering bad planning. Actually, when we encounter good planning, when we encounter good places, we instinctively seem to feel it. Absolutely. So, Dr. Buras, yeah, I would uh, first like to know a little bit about your background. Uh, as you have had a very yeah, extensive work history, why did you gravitate towards city planning and architecture in the first place? I really... I'm not sure. Um, I think it all started um, when, as a teenager, I was given my room to design in a remodel of the house. Mm -hmm. And and then um, what I designed was actually built for the room, mostly cabinetry. Um, but actually... When I went to college, I didn't actually know the difference between architecture and civil engineering, believe it or not. It wasn't clear to me. So I can't mm -hmm. say that I knew what I was doing other than I think my family kind of propelled me in that direction because yeah. they liked the idea. Because you studied architecture in uh, Israel, is that right? Yes. Yeah, I had the distinct experience in the 70s of studying architecture in Israel, and I had uh, before that, completed actually two years of civil engineering, and I realized I didn't like it. So I moved to architecture, and then architecture was one wonderful party for the remainder of college. I felt that I wasn't learning almost anything, but I really enjoyed myself. <laughs> had an amazing time in, uh, in college. Absolutely. The time was probably uh, a time in which architecture was completely dominated by yeah, modernist. Brutalism. Yeah. Brutalism. I was taught to design the most ugly stuff you can imagine and actually given <laughs> A's for designing bona fide, really, really, really ugly stuff. At the same time, the Technion 
degree is in architecture and town planning. So yeah, they pumped quite a bit of town planning into us as much as you could say that any of the stuff we learned at the time was of the essence. Um, and the moment I came out, um, I started practicing actually in the Israeli army as an architect and planner. And that's where I got my first lessons in planning. And the first lesson was mm -hmm. going out into the field and seeing that the contractors had done nothing based on our plans. And then I realized that urban planning has to follow KISS principle. I started looking around and I realized that there were no environments that really were successful long term. With the exception, maybe, of the traditional environments in Jerusalem and the older ones in Tel Aviv, Jaffa, and so on. So uh, I spent, I would say, 30 years looking at planning from the outside, seeing that it didn't work anywhere that I was working. And that was San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, New York City, Washington, D.C., Tel Aviv. It just wasn't working. And wondering about it until I got so frustrated with the planning process. Oh, um, I started watching the planning process here in Portland, Maine about 10 years ago. I got so frustrated. I just wrote a book. Here, guys, do this. And that was the beginning of the shift in thinking. Yeah. Was that the book, uh, The Art of Classic Planning? Yes, it was. Um, but, but then, you know, something else happened on the way, and that was that uh, in the, in the mid-90s, um, I had an opportunity to go back to school for a PhD. Um, I really was not happy with modernism because I didn't understand why it had to look like Frank Gehry or it had to look postmodern. I didn't understand why things looked the way they did. And I didn't know why mm -hmm. things looked the way they did in classical and traditional architecture either. So I went back to school asking the questions, uh, why do th things, buildings, look the yeah. way they do? And I found out. I asked the question, what is modernism? And from that point on, I, um, I started understanding what was going on in a, in a better way. So you first studied urban planning and architecture, then you went out in the field, into the world, you discovered what went wrong, and then you started wondering, why doesn't it work? Then you went back, you discovered what modernism was, and then that kind of ignited your thinking? Or I Actually, the moment I understood th that modernism was actually an extension of Romanticism. Yeah. I understood that the first hundred years of Romantic mm -hmm. thinking from 1800 to 1900 were really based on a series of ideas. I call them Romantic Intentions. And my next book is about that. And some of these ideas have absolutely nothing to do with design. Some impact the design somewhat. And some actually are specific styles that tell you what something is going to look like. We're not used to talking this clearly about design. When you talk about function, are you, are you saying that something, that a building uh, uh, performs in and of itself? Are you saying 
that you can hold certain activities within it or that it has a utilitarian appearance. Yeah. Which is it? And that lack of clarity pervades romantic thinking. The first hundred years of romanticism were backward looking, mm -hmm. neo-medieval, neoclassical, neo-everything. The next hundred years looked to an equally imaginary future, the machine age. And we are here in this machine age that was looked towards, and you know what it looks like now. So there really today is no, uh, there's no, no, nobody's really thinking about a non-dystopian future. Yeah, because it's all it's all imagined as some dystopian future. Yes. Yeah, but could you explain a bit about the the core of this romantic thinking for the listeners who the, don't know? There, you know, when you are talking about functionalism, space, color, light, um, socialist architecture, um, fascist architecture modernist architecture, uh, stripped this, stripped that, uh, deconstructivist, uh, you name it, all these postmodernist, all these different things. Yeah. You ask, where did these ideas come from? And until about 1750, all architecture was predicated on a pleasing solution. Then people asked, is there some other principle other yeah. than a pleasure-based aesthetic experience yeah. for the aesthetic experience? And the, the, the answer was yes. The opposite of pleasure is pain. Ah. So you could have a pain-based aesthetic experience, and we have them today, a lot of them. The for example, horror movies. Yeah. Yes, they named that the sublime. You're right. Yeah. So that you suddenly had a bifurcation, a fork in the road, and you could look at the pleasure-based aesthetic experience, the beautiful, and then the fear or terror-based aesthetic experience. And they defined it as be being enormously large. The buildings would be enormously large of simple geometry, infinitely repeated, and no ornament. And that's every single tall building today. Yeah, it's basically what we see everywhere. And uh, yeah, I, I I was not able to fully read your book, but I was able to scan a big part and read parts of it. And yeah, the part about the sublime was really an interesting thing that I haven't read before, uh, but it uh, describes a lot of things uh, really accurately. It, it made... Yeah, <laughs> made a couple of things uh, click. Yes, um, this, the topic of the sublime is, is, first of all, it doesn't appear in all Western cultures, and it, it doesn't appear at all in, in, uh, in any other culture around the world. But within the West, it is a topic that was really addressed primarily by the English and the Germans. Mm -hmm. And for the English, it was pretty clear that you're talking here about a pain-based versus a pleasure-based aesthetic experience. And that's Burke who wrote about it back in uh, 1753, I believe. Uh, the Germans had a different approach to it, and their approach really mixed the two because the, uh, the, the, uh, the good sense of elation or awesomeness 
um, in the good sense, like we use today, um, was confused with the pleasure of beauty. And um, I think that that got in the way of their thinking and really got in the way of uh, Kant's thinking about uh, about beauty because at the end of the day, he could not um, describe what the aesthetic experience was without contradicting himself. So today we do understand that the aesthetic experience is an individual. It, it's, an, it's an individual experience. Something is beautiful, not in itself, yeah. but that it contains visual cues that give you an experience of beauty. Yeah. yeah and I also think that uh, the, the beautiful and the sublime are mixed by people because they don't understand what they see and what they experience. They, they miss language. Yeah. Yes. They yes. mistake the sublime for the beautiful. Then they, they see this effect and it speaks to them in, yeah, it speaks to their emotions. So they think, oh, that is beauty because it speaks to my emotions, but it doesn't necessarily speak to their, yeah, <laughs> their pleasure. Yeah very, yeah. yeah. very well said. Yeah. Not, not all emotions are equal. You have two types of emotions, love and fear, basically. And uh, if you don't distinguish between the two of them, you are going to have a very confused experience, actually. Um, and and uh, so I, I prefer um, uh, the good and the true and beautiful to, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's better to be rich, <laughs> yeah. healthy, and what is it, rich, healthy, and good looking than, yeah. than ill, poor, and ugly, you know, so yeah. <laughs> same thing. So... Um, yeah, so when you um, started yeah, delving into this subject and you started discovering what modernism was, but also probably what the other side was, traditional architecture, like how did you like transition to, to traditionalism? Well, the moment I realized that the ideas underpinning modernism are very weak, not a, there's no philosophy in architecture at all. And there is no theory actually in modernism. It is all opinion and flavors of opinion. Yeah. None of it really sticks together as a... There's nothing scientific about the modern approach. Nothing. It really is an opinion and an, ide an ideology. It's a set of ideas that are followed without people actually... Asking where did this come from? What does it mean? What am I doing? Nobody asked that in the modernist way of thinking. And when I got to that point of realizing that, I had an intellectual conversion to the method, the classical method, which I understood came from an understanding of the unity of truth, goodness, and beauty, which actually is a description of the universe. And that is a description of holism, obviously. And I yep. understood that the method actually had more utility for people than some individual ego-based, aesthetic, stylistic, fashionable, you know, um, exploration. Because it's grounded in the, you could say, the core principles of the universe instead of some individuals uh yeah experience and in common human experience yeah and in common human thinking and in the good 
Yeah. And so on and so forth. So there was a method here. And and then I, I, I uh, it was an intellectual conversion. And trust me, intellectual understanding is a very small part of any understanding. Um, about uh, five years after my PhD, I actually took my first, uh, I, I started actually working in the classical mode without knowing it or knowing about it. In the early 2000s, I studied um, Grand Central Terminal. You realize that that building doesn't have a single molding before the cornice. Well, it has very little. It has setbacks of, of, of wall plane, three-eighths of an inch thick. Wow. It's yeah. got nothing. It, it has no natural materials above six feet. It's all artificial materials above that. And yet it all looks like it's stone and so on. Huge lessons to learn from it. Yeah. And if you stand on the floor in the room, you feel the trains moving through. That whole place is constantly moving. There are very <laughs> few cracks in the stone. So I had an opportunity to work on the U.S. Capitol building and other buildings in that complex and really study them closely. The National Gallery, the, the original building, the West Building, and really read the architecture without being literate. And then about 2005, I took the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art classes. I started the, um, the uh, ICAA chapter in Washington, D.C. I was certified as a class assist. And I could say that that was the beginning of my professional growth, my genuine professional growth. The first year of working as a classicist, I learned more about architecture from my teachers mm -hmm. and peers and reading and research and whatever and design than I had in 25 years of modernist yeah. architecture. Because you have done an incredible amount of work before that. Uh, I saw your resume, it was, uh, yeah, there was a lot of huge projects in New York, uh, DC. Well, yeah. I, I, I liked big because it's easy for me. The bigger a project mm -hmm. is, the simpler it's gotta be. It's gotta be based on simpler notions. I designed East Side Access, which is the extension to Grand Central Terminal for the Long Island Railroad. Yeah. I actually designed the train rooms and the concourse and everything from the standpoint of an emergency, believe it or not. And knowing that most of the users would be um, commuters really made life easy because commuters, you know this yourself, when you get on a train commuting, you get in the door from which you're going to exit on the train because that exit tells you where you're going to go to the surface from. And and therefore the people actually know their dance in their body. They have a they have a a physical memory of it. And for emergency purposes, I wanted to count on that. Yeah. So even if they were in the wrong place, they would still once they identify a location, they'll be able to know how to go through it. That it might be the same for them that way. At the same time, because we were working underground, I wanted to use 
the mm-hmm. emergency lighting itself and the, nat- the, the, the normal lighting as an identification, an orientation technique. So you would always walk towards places that have brighter light. Yeah. And that's how the thing was designed. And, and once we understood these principles, it, it, the design went very, very quickly. And this was after the company that I worked for, AECOM, had already been working for two and a half years on the project. They got nowhere. Um, myself and another person, uh, Doug Tolden, uh, designed the station. He did the, um, the descent into the train rooms. I did the actual train rooms and... Uh, and uh, and concourse and i lived in new york at the time i stayed at the uh algonquin hotel which is itself a trip mm-hmm. um going home to dc every every weekend best thing about new york is the train to dc <laughs> and got to intimately know that part of town wandering in the underground spaces some of them were size of cathedrals down there. And on the surface, identifying what was below from my memory, there are places in the area around Grand Central where the street is six inches thick, wow. the beams are one foot thick, and one foot under the street, you can actually see the roof of a train. Wow. It's extraordinary. <laughs> So it's 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 uh, it's pretty thin then. Just you got just a street, and underneath is just this whole network of tunnels and and trains and uh... two huge train levels with three separate structural systems: a structural system for the buildings, a structural system for the streets, and a structural system that holds up the wow. two levels of train. So you have three structural systems that need to operate independent of each other. We had a thousand and three columns in the in the in the concourse itself, and all mm. but twenty three were resolved out <laughs> of a thousand. So that's not so bad. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, underground systems are so incredibly uh, complex. I think here in Amsterdam we had uh, they had to build a new metro line from north to the south of the city and because everything is basically just mud and and jello and peat and uh and also very fragile historical houses built on wooden poles that would start to rot once the water level would drop took an incredible amount of engineering to make sure the houses would not collapse but yeah that's uh I mean, in New York, you, of course, also have the bedrock. Well, there's this myth that uh, Manhattan is a single piece of rock, and it's not. No. First of all, it's many, men, it's got many parts of it with different types of rock, so that where Grand Central is, the rock is kind of this reddish-brown, just like break dust. And it is a schist, a reddish-brown schist. Under Carnegie Hall, mm-hmm. it's white with with mica speckles in it. So it's almost as if the institutions of <laughs> of New York follow the geology, and we know 
already that the tall buildings follow the geology because there are yeah. places where you have very poor stone, like in the middle, um, so that uh, between downtown and, and the Empire State Building, you have very few tall buildings. And then around 63rd Street, there is a real jumble of stone, very, very, very um, disrupted, um, that made the tunneling difficult yeah. um, for for the uh, the project. But it's several, you know, it's like all these projects. It's uh, quite a few billion, and the station itself was a couple billion. So at the, at that rate, you really need to uh, watch out for every every million. <laughs> and uh, um, when the actual cost of construction of one inch of platform, actually widening it by one inch costs five, ten million dollars wow. uh, along the length, you uh, <laughs> really have to uh, be careful yeah. how and what you design. Yeah, incredible. So what is your uh, favorite building? Uh, that's a really great question. Um I, I want to say, you know, like a parent, I love them all. I've, I've <laughs> taught so much and I use so many as examples. And there's something to learn from all the good ones. Not all mm -hmm. of them are great or good, um, but there's something to be learned from so many of them. I think the first building I actually noticed, um, I, I think I've been noticing buildings my whole life. Um, my father taught me geometry when I was seven on the on the living room floor and then um they bought me my parents bought me a drafting set and about an hour half an hour after i got the set i came out with my first design which was a house uh <laughs> organized a two-story house organized around a cylindrical two-story um aquarium yeah that was my wow. first project <laughs> um I um, was a child growing up in uh, both uh, Haifa and Los Angeles and then Tel Aviv and Haifa um, and was very sensitive to the buildings, always noticed them, um, uh, felt what the effect that they had on me, noticed differences and so on and so forth. Went around the world when uh, I was 10 the first time and at Rio Anji, this garden in, uh, in Kyoto, um, was there? They have a stone garden there, and I was really struck by the fact that I was standing on the wood bench, the wood floor of the temple, looking at stone, and the stone was untouchable. So my physical experience was wood while I'm looking at stone. I remember that very strongly, and not until uh, David Hockney, in his book on photography, had a photograph of him standing on the stone bench next to the on the on the wood bench next to the stone did i come across someone who had a similar kind of experience on that trip to the far east yeah um i saw the taj mahal for the first time and when i stepped we used to come in the old way through the the red fort that was next to it and stepping over the threshold because there was a we went through a man door in the big gate uh um stepped over the threshold i was really taken aback and i had a sense oh this is going to take me a long time to figure out <laughs> and then when i was 28 i had a similar experience looking at the parthenon 
I literally had a stem doll experience. I saw the Parthenon. You know, you go up the up the uh, path uh, of the Acropolis. I had just come, you know, was coming from Israel. I'd just come back from Egypt, actually, and spent a few weeks in Egypt walking around. And I came to the Parthenon and going up the hill, and suddenly you see this. You walk through the gate, suddenly you see this. And I literally took a step back. And it was, I was 28. At that point, I knew this is going to take me a long time to figure out. And it wasn't <laughs> before my 40s that I actually had. So these are the the first influential maybe buildings. And then I kept on remembering all the buildings that I had seen on the way. Um, the um, Maybe the, the my conscious experience um, growing up and working in, in, in Israel was that there are very few buildings worth paying attention to, uh, notably the, uh, the uh, Jerusalem uh, YMCA and the Rockefeller Museum, and then uh, moving to Los Angeles when I realized that Wilshire Boulevard has one of each building of each culture from every period, whatever you want to call it, built better than the original. <laughs> so uh, by then I was a student of Charles Moore, who yeah. was a terrible postmodernist architect and an absolutely fantastic educator. And he made us go back and read buildings, read history, read, 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 until we knew something about what we were talking about. And he didn't give, he didn't comment on projects that didn't, weren't of quality. He just said nothing. And he said nothing about my work for the first six months of school. And then he started commenting. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so that when, by the time I was finished, I wanted to um, do a project on a birthing resort. That was my thesis project. Did you want him to comment, actually? Or did you... Uh What, what was it like, his teaching style? His teaching style was when I told him I didn't know what to do for my thesis, <laughs> he said, well, what recently happened? And I said, uh, my grandfather passed away. Yeah. And that was, he was the person closest to me of all my family. Um, or who loved me the most and, and, and unconditionally. I couldn't, you know, I had just lost him, but for me, he was never gone, is never gone. So I did, I couldn't wrap my head around a monument. And I think I was seeing more of this man than I could put in a monument. So I thought, well, what's the opposite of death? Birth. Okay, let's do birth yeah. and resort. <laughs> and, and a year later, uh, after I, after I graduated, my daughter was born amazingly, but um, I could use I, I went looking for feminine architecture. And I found it in the Mughal harems. It's, it's among the most beautiful, evocative, sensitive, intelligent, sophisticated architecture ever. And trust me, they took care of their women. They, in, in, within their families, within their groups, their And they and they gave them the best built environment. I'm not commenting on the rest of it. The best built environment for women, I think, ever 
imagined. And these harems were in? In India. In India. The Mughal architecture in India, uh, 1600s, 1700s. Taj Mahal was uh, was built for the uh, the tomb of uh, Shah Jahan's uh, beloved wife, Mumtaz. Um, And I looked at that architecture again for its climatic, for its... um, for its uh, the, the the grace with which it deals with women individually and women as as a group, I looked a little bit at the at the Alhambra also, and yeah. from that I designed a, a birthing center that had seven environments for birth. Wow! From yeah. outdoor to indoor, and including operating rooms and everything else. Um, what have you? Anyways, um. So that was uh, that you know sort of uh, um, was was part of the path of using architectures and working with architectures that are not I'm not native to. Yeah, yeah, that must have been extremely useful, I can imagine. So you founded the Classic Planning Institute to bring this holistic vision you have on planning and architecture. Could you tell a bit about what the Classic Planning Institute does and what it is? Well, I'll tell you what it does do, and I'll tell you what it doesn't do. What it does do is it brings the classical method back to the world, Mm -hmm. and that's the method that's shared by all the cultures everywhere. What it doesn't do is have all buildings be classical. What it does have is all buildings be appropriate. And you actually have every single style in the world on a palette. And you can choose and select what you want to do for your building. So it's not about eclecticism in buildings. That sometimes works, requires a great deal of sophistication, and in most cases flops because... Uh, the folks who want to do the eclectic work, I'll give you, for example, the Bellas Artes building in, in, in Mexico City. It's a, it's a fine building. It's nice. It's okay. But the guy invented his own orders, and they're yeah. weak, you know? <laughs> um, and, and, and then the, the mixing and matching of, of styles to get yeah. this or that effect in a single building sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. It has to be done really, really clearly and very, very... Um, um, uh, you know, methodically, it, it, it requires sophisticated design abilities, but it doesn't mean that the next building has to be the same style as the as the building you're building. Yeah, yeah because that's often uh, when one tries to promote the classical design method, people directly think of oh, Greek and Roman temple-like buildings. Uh, just the, the classicism. Uh, some people even think of Albert Speer. It's yeah, it's about the method of design, isn't it? Yes, and Speer's work, contrary to what Leon Krier says, I, I don't agree with him. The fact that Speer or Hitler might have thought that they were using classical orders or shapes, let's say like a dome, in their structures did not make it classical. It was way oversized. It was not appropriate for anything. The sublime again. And it was the sublime, yes. So you you can use classical orders in a sublime project. It's not going to make it a classical project. No. 
So, so the Classic Planning Institute spreads the methodology of classic design. So, so how is it structured? How did it come to be? Well, it, it came to be because the moment the, the book was published, um, COVID struck, um, and I thought I was going to give uh, a book talks around the country or around the world, and, and uh, that kind of was put on hold. So when I started asking around, at the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, if they would mm -hmm. like to have more of a presentation, actual hands-on class, because there's knowledge here to be shared. Or when I approached the uh, University of Notre Dame to help them set up a an urbanism lab, which would not be new urbanist or modernist, um, there was no interest. But yet, at the same time, the fundamental Fundamentals of the classical method include architectural literacy yep. and the classic planning knowledge bases, which are classic street design, classic waterfront design, town and country design, a classic resilience design in, in structures and so on and so forth. Many topics, some of which have never been recorded. Even documented, nothing. There's still a lot of work yeah. to do to figure out what made cities and urban fabric in the past work so well. And you have to remember that planning as a profession really started around the uh, late 1800s with Zitte and, 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 and from Stuben. <clears throat> um, and that um, uh, they they didn't have an overall view. They had very particular views of things, some of which were yeah. adopted, some of which were morphed and changed by the planners. So there's something to be taught here. I had no choice. Nobody on a regular basis is giving architectural literacy classes, and yeah. those who are giving architectural literacy or at least teaching the orders are not teaching materials. I mean, in that context, um, they're not teaching... Uh, necessarily proportions and so on and so forth, uh, or composition. So um, architectural literacy, and then nobody anywhere is teaching classic planning, the basics, fundamentals, and the application. So I didn't really ever imagine or want to have a classic planning institute. It just sort of happened because nobody else was doing it. When I think back of my urban planning and urbanism education, yeah, we never, we never came close to learning the kinds of knowledge you can find in your book. How to create a beautiful and functioning street. And I think for a starting designer, it just really helps to take advice from the old town plans that work. So I think a book like this is something I would have needed. I would have really loved uh, to have at my disposal when I started out. Well, thank you very much. Um, me too, in the sense that there are there's so much jargon and so much mythology yeah. within the <laughs> field, non-factual mythology. People talk about organic plans as if, uh, you know, and when you look at anything man-made, um, I think this, this happened to me in Greece also. Um, I was on a bus in the Peloponnese looking down some ravine and there was a tiny little Greek temple down at the bottom of the ravine somewhere. 
and it was all white and gleaming. And it was surrounded by the scrub oak, which is the natural uh, natural sort of the morphology and the planting. And I said, how is it possible that something man-made could be more attractive than the nature surrounding it? Really blew me away. Today I do know, because we've done the research in this. So when I wrote the book, my goal was to document what has worked and call out things that have not worked as such. So, yes, we have really three types of urban fabric. Stuff that's on a grid, stuff that's what I call a cosba plan, going every which way. Some people refer to it as organic or vernacular. Yeah. Those are inadequate terms for that, I believe. All planned fabric in, engages a grid somehow or other. But you still had great cities to this day, Rome, uh, Paris, uh, uh, London, and so on, that are um, they they have a um, a cosmotype plan in much of them, and so the book discusses how that actually occurs, and it mentions that it, it's either because of sometimes you have like in the Italian hill towns it follows the topography, so you really don't yeah. have much choice if you want to go up the hill, you need to go yeah. on an angle, of course. so that gives yeah. you the winding streets. Um, on the other hand, it could be as a result of settlement that that encroaches uh, onto agricultural area, and then you probably had an arrangement of fields that was irregular, and then this, the 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 borders of the fields become the streets, and then you divide inside this way or that. Um, another thing which I saw in some of the Nabataean cities, some of them are planned, were planned a priori before they started settling them. But some of them literally sprang from a um, an encampment of a caravan or of clans. Uh, there's a town called Mamshit in the Negev in Israel, and you will see that it has an irregular plan, and you understand yeah. that this was each clan had its own precinct, and the, the space between the precincts became the streets. So it is giving you an imprint of the first night of occupation. Yeah, wow. Which is probably what happened in Rome and in London and so on, or... The fourth possibility is, as a result of, like in Paris, as a, although in Paris, you, I think you still have the original grid in here or there, but where the grid is underpinning or underlying but not very evident, you have the, subs the Roman grid, let's say. You have that in Beit Sha'an in Israel, uh, in that city, Scatopolis, where you have, as a result of a subsequent invasion, the encroachment of private property into public space. And then the remaining street becomes windy. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the takeaways from your book is how the grid system is a very handy tool for designing a new piece of city. Is that correct? It's kind of a default, but it doesn't mean that every block has to be the same width, that every street has to be the same width, that every block has to have a similar use uh, uh, compared to the adjacent blocks. 
It, it, none of that is true. As a matter of fact, um, I sent people back to uh, read Vitruvius, and we might actually have this year a reading of Vitruvius chapter by chapter. Uh, we haven't finalized that yet. But uh, I sent them back to that and also to the law of the Indies, which which um, was the rule under which all of the um, beautiful Latin American towns or Spanish Spanish colonial cities around the world, major ones, were laid out. Um, and you see that the blocks are not equal. You see that, that the rhythm of streets differs as you work your way out from the center, from the from the plaza, and also you see that the plazas are different sizes based on the anticipated size of the of the community. You see that you have minor plazas next to important churches that are outlying uh, or, or monasteries, and so on and so forth. So you have very. This is one of the more intelligent ways to uh, plan out cities, and people spend you know a lot of money visiting these these quaint yeah. places because they love them. Uh, so yeah, there's a, uh, it, it's kind of, it's a, it's a default of sorts, um, where if we want to kink a street, I think we need to think very carefully about it. Raymond Unwin, who wrote, um, his book on urban planning, uh, in the uh, beginning of the 20th century, uh, one of the important books in that regard, uh, says, Basically, that if uh, before you kink a street or curve it, you know, think really hard. Kiss principle all the way. Just keep it simple. Yeah. So, what do you see happening nowadays in the in the planning business? Well, it definitely is a business, and people spend gazillions on following processes that make no difference. It's an amazing dance. Yeah. So I think that communities need to take the planning away from the planners and away from the municipality. Municipality can enforce a plan once it's in place, but I think the communities actually need to create the plans for themselves from within. And we're helping... Um, at least one community do that right now in Haiti. Uh, we are, we're planning to have a 100-year plan studio with um, some people in Port-au-Prince in uh, March, April. Um, but yeah, I think that that's kind of where the, the book tends, you know, after it goes through all the stuff about blocks and streets and parks and Plazas and all these good bits and pieces, and transport and so on and so forth. I'm a I'm a big proponent of autonomous vehicles. I think that they're great. Yeah. They're basically uh, uh, horizontal elevators. Why not? Um, um, at the end, it winds up being a community thing. Do you want to live in a pretty place that's good for you, or do you want to live in an ugly place where you actually pay with your health? Uh, for the opportunity of living there, like in Los Angeles, let's say. Um, not to say that yeah. there aren't nice neighborhoods in L.A., but L.A. as a whole is like whatever. And to take us back to what I call city of makers, where we actually re-engage skilled manual 
building arts, because they're good for the individuals who work in them, they're good for the users and viewers, they're good for society and planetarily in yeah. terms of energy and, and pollution and reuse and everything else. How do you, how do you see the economic model of uh, this kind of manual labor uh, in today's markets? Is, is there a... Well, absolutely. It, it, there is not a single market in the world that is not subsidized. Not one. Mm-hmm. So if you think that we have a lot of cars, it's because they're subsidized. The government, or we are the government, the government is paying for the roads. The trains in the U.S. are not working because the government, we are not paying for them. Yeah, taxes, fuel subsidies. Well, it's, 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 uh, it's exactly um, dev- deciding on our priorities. When we understand that building manually is of the essence we will we will subsidize correct and proper construction you have to remember that democracy replaced oligarchy aristocracy yeah. monarchy so we are taking on the role of the nobility what was as a group of individuals it means that noblesse oblige is not abandoned, okay? We have to apply noblesse oblige, no less. We have to consider ourselves nobility, not a bunch of schlubs, (laughs) but all of us first among equals individually. As we are the voters, we, we are the government. We are, so we have to take responsibility. We're not consumers of government. We are, yeah. We are the government, and, and at the same time, communities have to look at each other together. They're not victims of government. They are the government, and they should decide for themselves that they want health for all. And the idea that I don't want to do something because I don't feel like doing it when that impacts others negatively is like driving through a red light. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the, I think the, the responsibility of, yeah, the, the, the feeling of responsibility of people in communities is, yeah, it might be a whole subject for an, uh, <laughs> a separate episode because there's so much to, to talk about, but, but, but let's refocus maybe, um, on, yeah, your book, the art of classic planning. Um, Leon Krier called it truly the mother of all planning books. Um, so yeah, how has it been received also in the market and, and in the planning community? I get the kind of responses that are very moving from many people. Like um, my first boss from the Israeli army and a modernist planner from Israel said that the book actually documents everything he's thought but never found a way to express. So not surprising because, you yeah. know, I, I came from the same place he did originally. And um, I did take the time to to ask these questions. And I really had to step away outside from, uh, you know, from the city. I wrote this book in the woods, actually. So I hope I'm out of the woods. <laughs> but 
it's been it's been accepted in really beautiful ways by many who really care about their communities. It's been uh, the the people who are resisting it are those from with with strong modernist planning backgrounds. Yeah. Have have you faced um, a lot of backlash? No, not at all. Um basically there are people who get it and those who don't. And so I'm not here to educate folks. I'm here just to communicate, document and communicate. Uh, I speak only to the, uh, to the converted, so to speak. I, I, I'm not going to, I don't care to convince anybody um, that a pretty street is better than an ugly street. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. that's, not, I, I, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, we're we're selling you know we're selling uh, copies every day and uh, it's going at a um, uh, at a good enough clip. Um, yeah. I'm very pleased with the with the uh, with the outcome so far. Of course, I would love for it to be a, a, a New York Times bestseller. Do you see that happening? I don't know of any other book about cities that is so encompassing and so consistently scientific. I just don't know. Maybe there is one. I yeah. just don't know. It's the selling of stuff. Uh, I don't think the planning books have have done that. The book was designed by Harvard University Press to be a long-term source book. Yeah. And it was designed, actually, by a Bible designer. Oh, uh, wow. 2K Denmark. They specialize in Bibles. Yeah, it's 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 a beautiful volume. Nice. I've got the the hardcover version, and uh, it's uh, really something you can always have on your desk. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. And maybe the best way to read it is just to leave it open somewhere and flip to a page with a picture you like, and and just read that page and move on. And you know, um, yeah. they they made it very heavy. I kind of wish it had not been <laughs> that heavy. Um, uh, but you know, I, I cannot complain. No. Um, they they gave me the royal treatment, and they gave the book the royal treatment, and it was it was printed in Vicenza, uh, ten minutes from uh, Palladio's best building. So that's perfect. It has a pedigree. <laughs> so a quick look in the book. So so the first part is about how we got to the current state of our cities, and then it talks about the fundamentals of classic planning before going to the application of classic planning methods. I think we already talked a little bit about yeah, the current state of our cities and the whole piece about yeah, the romantic ideas. Uh, I was actually a little bit shocked about the, the English garden idea you described that might have been one of the inspirations for a lot of suburbs. Well, the first, the first car suburbs by... by um Olmsted yeah. were kind of in that, they were designed in that way in the sense that you would be driving through your estate, which is really shared by many. And then with, if you're kind of hiding the various houses behind landscaping, you get to yours, you're really driving through an estate until or a countryside until you get to your, to your place. And then there's a village in it somewhere. Uh, Palos Verdes, California is the first, I think, uh, car suburb that was uh, designed as such. Yeah. Um, so 
that was an inspiration and but and and you see that in the windy streets especially in the in the car suburbs that um have windy streets to them um but you also have the original suburbs were actually train or or rail suburbs and the the houses were just boom laid out in rows rather densely and the life was really good there was a differentiation between the houses you pretty much knew even though in the next block over you could maybe find a house in similar to yours in a different color perhaps um but you knew your house on the block and and uh, and so on and so forth um the, the the discussion of suburbia i it took me a long time to get through that and sprawl until i realized that there's mm -hmm. no such thing as sprawl what we really have is what i call cities of refuge think about a refugee camp it's one to two stories tall it has uh, an occasional high street a smattering of commercial everybody is there there's no civic sense and everybody is there for their best perceived opportunity now think of los angeles or houston it's mostly one to two stories overwhelmingly residential an occasional high street a smattering of commercial no civic sense and everybody is there for their best perceived opportunity so you would say some form of a proliferation of informal settlements around a weak core, perhaps. And what do you think of cities like Los Angeles? Los Angeles has a code and a very strong planning department. Houston yeah. does not have a, a planning code. And they look absolutely the same. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a lot of planning. There's not a suburb that's not planned out the wazoo today in any country, anywhere. And yet the result is a high-class refugee camp. So I'm sure this wasn't the intention, <laughs> but people are, are, are buying into it because it's convenient, especially with cars that are such a... I mean, we all love cars, and, and there's nothing wrong with cars. And I, ostensibly, I never say take cars out of city, cities. Um, you'll see that in, in classic streets. We never say take, take uh, cars out of anything. We never say segregate anything. We Actually, one of the rules of classic planning is no use-based codes, no segregation of anything, not people, not uses, not nothing. We figure that stuff will work out because people ain't stupid. People will probably have enough common sense not to build a huge oil refinery next to a water treatment plant. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But I think that if you actually operate from classic planning principles, chances are you might not because it, it follows other sort of um, fundamental rules than standard modernist planning or non-planning which seem to give you the same results. But on the street, we think there are no modes of traffic, cars, skateboards, bicycles, buses, trucks. We don't believe in that. We believe exclusively that everything, everybody on the street is a person. 
and people have to negotiate their way down the street with other people. How would you use this approach in a country where you have a very strong history of urban planning laws, like the Netherlands, for instance? Get rid of them. They don't work. They have never worked anywhere. Paris itself has four zones. Parks, monuments, government, general urban. Done. And a city is a place for human contact, not for segregation. So segregating anything is a bad idea for cities. If you have really, really bad bad uh, uses like mines or waste dumps or, or refineries or really horrible factories, like for batteries, for example, then you have to find a, a good enough place for them that won't impact others. Okay, done. But you're not going to put an abattoir next to a next to a nursery school. Yeah. For one thing, all zoning is backward looking because you can only define a use that you have defined until this very second. In this second, you don't know what yeah. use people are going to come up with or do. So we just drop the whole thing. If somebody wants to start a garage, Think of cities like Florence, of uh, uh, Paris. You have garages right next door to other to other uses. It's not. It's never a problem. As a matter of fact, um, the the chapter on parking talks about um, learning from the past. What do, what did we do with horses? Where did we put the horses in the past? And where do we yeah. put the cars today? And so on and so forth. So, just the whole idea of use-based planning is a non-starter. But you want to design exclusively as a good-looking environment. You want to sprinkle it with civic uses like schools, churches, post offices, um, whatever those uses are, um, maybe some uh, stations, uh, you know, where you put a metro station. Any town over 250,000 people probably wants a, a an underground metro and so on. So far as the uses, the bakery or the garage, they'll just spring up automatically because people need them. And these things do work out on their yeah. own. Cities like in the early, in especially uh, neighborhoods in, in like Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam, uh, in the early 20th century, you had so much... Uh, commerce everywhere. You had little shops, you had little bakeries, little uh, fruit and vegetable uh, salespeople. Yeah, you had so many little shops integrated into the urban fabric and it has disappeared. It's it's all centered into supermarkets. But I think it's actually a shame because that is exactly the the mingle of functions and the, the high density yeah, urban living which makes the city feel like a city and is actually really attractive. You're right. So get rid of what doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do agree. There's a lot of rules in place that actually are extremely unproductive, uh, but they give a sense of, of like safety and of preventing problems because people will complain. That, that's the thing. You will get NIMBYs. And how do they, do, how do they handle that in Paris? If you don't like a use that a neighbor of yours is putting up, you go to court. You take them to court. Because for, for occupancy, 
you do need a an, an approval process of the people around. Fine, okay. By the same token, um, this feeling that we are more secure because we have denied in advance the ability of people to do X, Y, Z is a myth. Cut a long story short, what we really want to do is get to the place where mom and pop stores yeah. are subsidized so that you can walk down and get your your bread. You don't have to get into a car for a quart of milk and drive. Uh, I, I drive for, for milk here. I drive, oh, a, a mile, I suppose just to get to, to some milk, you know, yeah. what, what's the, it's crazy. It's, it doesn't, it's not okay. It's, it's not the, the way you want to have it, but then I'm living in a rural suburb in a yeah. city of refuge, actually, rather than, um, with the illusion of being in the woods rather than in a city, in a city, you want the, all these things close by and we have to subsidize for them. If we don't, we're not going to have it because we are, we are by default subsidizing for big box the moment we pay in advance for big roads, and we we allow these sort of extra urban big box centers to occur. Yeah, those are warehouse centers where we get our goods, and that also assumes that we're buying in bulk, so we need more storage in the house. So they are moving. Both yeah. the distribution and the storage of goods from their end to our end. We're paying the same amount for it in gas and rent or mortgage on a house <laughs> because we have more storage and we need to drive around. So the, the, the sum total is the same. But the difference is that they're making more money because they don't have to take care of getting it to the small scale distribution. And they are taking the middleman and the the little man, the mom and pops, uh, profit <laughs> and putting in their pockets yeah. uh, from the volume. So, whatever. Yeah. Smart sounds evil, um, but yeah, it, it's a logical consequence of uh, the whole. And urban. that takes you actually to a really important question, and this is a key to survival in the twenty first and twenty second centuries. And yeah. that is, there's got to be in place a rule that no entity over 10%, let's say, the size of a community can operate in that community. So you have to break down Amazon into every single one of its parts. You have to break down Walmart into every single one of its parts. You take that store turn it inside out into mom and pop operated what used to be a a um, um, a, a, a row, row of, of shelves becomes a mom and pop store for batteries, mom and pop store for toothbrushes, a mom and pop store for 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 uh, apricots, a mom and pop store for <laughs> for coca-cola okay and you break it down back again where the distribution is all the same. Let the distribution be uh, uniform. But but bring people back into the mix and take the roof off the whole thing and uh, build small buildings th that contain all this. You can have arcades and so on with the families living on top. 
And then in the floors above that, maybe you have senior citizens or young people. So you are actually building communities on these. These are really city centers without cities. Yeah. Lastly, yeah, let us move to the, the final question. What is your advice for young and aspiring architects and planners all around the world? I think there are no shortcuts. I think every architect and planner must be architecturally literate. That is the language. It's like reading notes for a musician. You can be an okay musician without being able to read notes. I don't know if Carlos Santana knew how to read notes. I don't know if Ringo Starr knows how to read notes. Likely he does. I don't know. But I don't know of many jazz musicians that don't know how to read notes. And I have not heard of any classical musicians that know, don't know how to read notes. Um, so you need to be architecturally literate. In cities, the single most important thing is the buildings because that's 90% of your aesthetic experience. It's the buildings on a street. So it's buildings. They're important. You've got to be architecturally literate. The second thing is you do have to know what has worked and you have to be able to produce the same yourself for your people. Remember that mediocre artists copy and great artists steal. So if you like some good environment, some good fabric, just build it for yourself and your people. There's no actual copying in the classical method because the orders and the patterns are adjusted to a location. We design new orders for every single building. They're never identical. The idea that they're copied is the same thing as saying that you are reusing the word civic, and it's wrong to copy the word civic from one sentence to another. It depends on the context. What you're doing is taking a concept and reapplying it to a new location, and that to a new context. And that actually is what the definition of invention. Invention is never creating something from nothing. That actually does not exist in the universe. So you need to understand this classic planning basics, the fundamentals, why it works, and how to make pretty streets and buildings and so on, parks and all that, town and country. We never talk about town and country. But then your education, and this is not offered anywhere except for in the Classic Planning Institute right now, we are building up to a program that does have several more aspects to it. One is that you travel. You have to travel for a year, self-guided, but see all the precedents that you've been taught, see them all. You also have to work under somebody for a couple of years that is a master of classic planning or traditional architecture. There is no shortcut. If you are a modernist architect, you can go work for somebody. They will teach you their personal style you will not be able to transfer any of that knowledge to another office because they work in another 
personal style. That's why you need to forget everything you learned at school to start working. In the traditional method, everything you learned at school is part of your content. You'll be able to build on that and grow from that. And finally, something that architects, planners, and building arts people all, in addition to architectural literacy, classic planning fundamentals, and travel, need to work in all the building arts need to hold the tools of the building arts themselves to understand what they are designing for. You have to hold a trowel, a hammer. You have to hold all these tools, lay a brick, you know, get calluses, all yeah. that stuff. You don't have to be an expert at it. But there are about 40 trades that you really want to be exposed to. You want to watch a plumber at work. You want to watch an electrician at work. You won't understand what they do. Even if you are an urban planner, you have so much technology going into streets, you have to see a water main laid. You have to see a sewer laid. You have to see the electrical system installed. You have to see how it's brought into, into buildings and houses. So you need that, that experience. And all of this has to be on top of at least a master's degree with prerequisites in chemistry, physics, biology, history, art, and so on and so forth. Music, opera. You, you're really designing for the full experience of humans. You need to have, know something about it. You're not a technocrat with use-based zoning and parking counts. That's not what you do. You're designing for people long-term. It's a multi-generational affair. Cities are. We have to take the long view. We have to take the aspirational view. We have to work in consensus. We have to do what has always worked for humans. And we have to do it from an aspirational, noble community point of view. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Barras. It's been a pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much for, for having me. It's an honor. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Aesthetic City Podcast. Don't forget to visit the website of the Classic Planning Institute, classicplanning.org. You're also welcomed to join the Classic Planning STOA, a community of like-minded people aiming for a better and more sustainable built environment. And of course, find Nirbora's excellent book, The Art of Classic Planning, on Amazon. You will find the links in the show description. If you like this podcast, consider giving it a favorable review on Apple or Spotify. Find more information on The Aesthetic City, on theaestheticcity.com or follow us on Twitter. Thank you until next time.